0: Well, currently we're uh, doing a four-week series, and today is the third week of that, which we've entitled "Unshakable." And this series centers around the testing of Jesus as it is recorded in Luke's gospel in chapter four. And I have said for the last couple of weeks that this series actually is a precursor. It's setting up a series that we'll be doing in the fall looking in the Gospel of Luke on the mission of Jesus and how he lived that out. And we're going to be doing a series entitled Living the Mission. Now, the purpose of this series is to remind us if we're going to live out the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to the mission of Jesus is cemented through the seasons of testing in our lives. Times when we stand against the distractions and we stay focused on the mission of what Jesus has called us to and how he's called us to live. Now, the enemy's purpose in this passage, in this particular testing event, is to get Jesus to depart from his mission so that the mission of God to restore lost humanity would fail. And Jesus will have none of it. He is unshakable. And so I believe that as we look at this passage, it reveals a lot to us about the character of Satan, the methods of Satan. I believe this passage gives us insight in how Satan will try and distract us from our mission as well, our focus on God's plan for our lives and our church and our families. And so we need to be aware of his tactics. We need to be completely committed to his mission so that like Jesus, we too Will be unshakable. So, in the first week, we laid the groundwork for the series and we considered what was leading up to it because we said that will help us understand. And so, we looked at the baptism of Jesus, his genealogy, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Then last week, we highlighted that when you look at the three tests that are found in this passage, they center around the same conversation that Satan had with Eve in the garden when he caused humanity to fail. And you look at the three tests centered around physical appetite, power, and protection. And so we focused on the first one last week physical appetite, and we were reminded of the importance. Of trusting God to provide for us what we need. Our trusting God, we said, is based on the depth of our relationship with God. You can't trust those you don't know. And so today we're going to look at the second test, which is centered in the theme of power. And we're going to read together Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. And serve him only. So let's look at the second test. Let's begin with the offer. The offer. As we read here in the text. Satan led Jesus to a high place, a mountaintop. Now, I'm not going to get into this this morning, but as I'm reading the text, I find this very interesting and, and, and it's something I'd like to look at more, but we know that this whole thing started because the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and now as the Spirit's leading him, now he's being led up to a high place by the enemy, to the mountaintop. And once he's there, Satan shows him the kingdoms of the world. Now, what we're reading here really is a vision. There's a vision that's happening because it says he shows him in an instant. It's almost like a, you know, a media video thing that's happening in front of Jesus here. It's a vision showing him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And so, of course, we know one of the most prominent at that time was Rome. And there were others around uh, uh, the world at that time. And he's showing them all these kingdoms. Now, a kingdom is a territory that's ruled by a king. That's, co- that's not complicated, right? And so he's offering Jesus here the opportunity to be the king of these kingdoms. What he's saying really to Jesus is this. I can make you the king of kings. I can make you the king of kings. He's attempting to to appeal to lust for power by showing Jesus visually what looks good, what looks pleasing. And he claims that he can give this to whomever he chooses because he says, all this has been given to me. I own all of this. I'm in control of all of this. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't argue with him about that. Jesus doesn't debate that with him. He doesn't disagree with him in, in terms of what Satan is saying here. Because we know that humanity was created when God created humanity. He created humanity to rule over creation, to be the ruler of the kingdom of the earth. But as we read the story, sadly, we see that mankind relinquished those rights to Satan at the time of the fall when the choice to sin destroyed God's intention for creation. And so, consequently, when Satan is talking to Jesus and he says, I rule the kingdoms of the earth, scripture supports that to be true. In fact, in Jesus' own words in John 12 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, Jesus refers to Satan in these passages as the prince or ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul calls Satan the God, small g, of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, we read that, yes, we are the children of God, we are loved by God, but the whole world is under the control of Satan. And so Satan does have authority over the kingdoms of the earth at this present time when this scripture is recorded and this conversation is taking place. And he can indeed give it to whomever he chooses. Probably one of the only times he's not lying. Now the idea of Jesus having authority over the kingdoms of the world may not in itself be wrong. But it does matter from whom this authority is received. And it does matter when it is received. And it does matter through what means it is received. And so we see the offer. The second thing I want us to see is the price. The offer to rule the kingdoms of the earth would come at a steep price. With a very significant condition. For Jesus. The price is to bow down. And worship. Satan. Jesus is being asked here. To worship. God's enemy. As a terms of condition. Falling down at one's feet. When we read that in scripture. Was to yield to. The authority of the person. Recognizing the authority of that person. To pay homage to to them and worship is a matter of allegiance and so the purpose here is to get Jesus to compromise. You don't have to wait Jesus. I know that all these things are promised to you down the road and there's all these things that have to happen but you don't have to wait Jesus. You can have it now. You can have it now and not only can he have it now Jesus, not only am I willing to give it to you right now before any of that, I'm actually going to make it more convenient for you. Because I'm going to give it to you in a way that allows you to avoid the suffering of the cross. Now the end justifies the means, Jesus. Come on. We know that's where you're headed anyway, so you can get what you want the easy way. Live in the moment, Jesus. Enjoy this instant gratification without the thought of any consequences, Jesus. That's what I'm offering you. Now the problem with this offer and the problem with the price is that Satan's offer is limited. He can only offer the kingdom of the earth. That's all he has. But as we read about the purpose and ministry of Jesus, Jesus has come to bring, to usher in, and to rule over the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom only of the earth, but the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God not only includes the spiritual realm, the kingdom of God also includes the earthly realm. It's all included in it. And so his offer is limited. In Psalm 2 verse 8, It's already been promised that the Messiah, when he comes, would have authority over the nations. That's already been promised to Jesus. Satan is offering him something that he's already been offered, already been promised. In Revelation chapter 11, Scripture declares that the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And of our Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so Satan's offer is flawed because he's offering to Jesus something that has already been promised to Jesus. And if Jesus worships him in this moment, if Jesus is willing to pay the price for instant gratification, pay the price to get the glory without the cross, then salvation is not going to be possible. Because by worshiping Satan, Jesus is going to sin. And if he sins, he's no longer the perfect sacrifice. God's plan required that Jesus suffer before his glory. Satan's plan bypasses the suffering and is disobedient to the will of God. Accepting the immediate kingdom would avoid the cross. But without the cross, there's no redemption for sin. And so what Satan is trying to do here, and let's not miss this, is derail the establishment of God's kingdom by trying to get Jesus to respond to instant gratification instead of through God's mission of the cross. Without the pain, without the rejection, without the suffering, without the obedience. And so when we worship someone, we acknowledge that person and the result is the one that is worshipped is to declare it to be greater in worth and power and authority than the one who is worshiping. And so what Satan really is trying to do here is to get Jesus to acknowledge him as the one to give homage to. Thirdly, we see the response. Jesus doesn't want to have any part in worshiping Satan. He's not interested in deterring from his mission. And so in response, he quotes from the word of God. And and again, he goes back to Deuteronomy and he's he's pulling from chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. And he says these words, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's pulling the words of Moses from the wilderness with the Israelites into this moment where he too now is in the wilderness. And he he is being faced with the challenge and testing of the devil. Now, this specific verse is connected to the reference of the goal, what we'll call the golden calf incident. That's what we'll call it. Your Bible probably doesn't call it that. That's because they didn't ask me to help write when it when I did. I would have called it the golden calf incident. Moses, we're told, was led by God. Up to the top of the mountain. He took Joshua a certain distance. And then left him sort of behind. And then he went up to the top of the mountain. To meet with God. This is a significant moment in Israel's history. In our history. In the history of salvation and humanity. This is where God begins to lay down his covenant. In attempts to restore relationship with his creation. And the very finger of God writes on the tablets of stone. His commandments and his law. We're told that Moses is gone for how many days? 40 days. Not a coincidence. For three months previous, he was visible. He was the obvious leader to the Israelites. They knew he was the man in charge. Every day he stood up. You talk about micromanaging. I mean, every single detail he stood up every day and brought instruction to, you know, from God to the people. Just, just spoon feeding them really, literally through, through, the, through the wilderness. All of a sudden now, there's no visible leader. He's gone. He's absent. And he's been gone longer than they thought. Well, I thought Moses was just kind of going up on the mountain. He'd be back in a day or so. And now it's 40 days and 40 nights. And there's still, there's, he's still not around. And restlessness begins to set in from the delay. And a group of people who took matters in their own hands came to Aaron and they said, listen, We have a problem here. Moses is gone and and we need a new God to worship. And so we, you know, we need you to help us out here. They'd lost sight of their old leader. They'd lost sight of their link to God. They'd lost sight of the presence of God. And they couldn't wait. They were impatient. They couldn't wait for God for Moses to return for the presence of God to become visible in their camp again. They just couldn't wait. And so they began to panic. They needed a God who was visible. They needed something tangible, something they could see, put their hands on. And they needed to respond now, right at this moment. And so they were willing to turn away from God's plan because uh, despite all that God had done for them up to this point, they were ready to throw it all away because it appeared that God's plan was delayed. And they turned to another God that they presumed would bring immediate results. It's an intimidating situation for Aaron. The pressure's on. I don't think Aaron wanted to do this, but he gave in and he did it. So he said, take off all your gold. And they responded. They brought it to him. And he crafted an image. He fashioned it with his hands, we're told. And he has his golden calf in the midst of the camp. And people begin to worship and say, we'll get to worshiping God tomorrow. But for now, we want to worship what we can see, what we can touch, what we're in control of, what we've made ourselves. And we'll get to God later. Well, meanwhile, Moses is on the mountain, and God interrupts the conference to say, Moses, we got a little problem down below. The people have corrupted themselves. The word it means spoiled, decay, rot. Something's gone bad, Moses. I can smell it from here. And since he left there, there had been a change for the worse, and now he's got to go down and deal with this immediately. Moses is unaware of how corrupt it's gotten. And so he makes his way down. He connects back up with Joshua. And they they can hear the noise as they're approaching the camp. And Joshua says, I think they're at war. I hear the sound of war. And Moses knew better. He was angry. He said, "That's, that's not what's happening. That's not the sound of war. And when he arrived, his fears were confirmed. And he saw it with his own eyes. He saw this calf in the midst of the people and the people worshiping and dancing around it and paying their homage to it and bowing down before it. He destroyed it. In fact, Moses did what probably a lot of us would do. I read that and I go, yeah, that's what I do. I mean, he grounded it up. He made them drink it in their drink. Oh, yeah, you want this? <laughs> right? You know, he was, he was pretty intense. You see, if God was going to lead the Israelites, they'd have to commit themselves to him alone. Full surrender, full obedience. And so in verse 10, Moses told them, listen, you have to worship the Lord only and serve him. There's no other God that can be worshipped. There's no other way but God's way. There's no other timing other than God's timing. They would need to trust God even when they couldn't see. And so here we are in Jesus on the mountain and he's committed to God's way. He's committed to God's timing without compromise. God and God alone would be the object of his allegiance. God and God alone would be given divine honor in his life. Now, it's interesting in Matthew's account, in this particular temptation, Jesus says to Satan, away with you. Away with you. Get behind me. Get out of my way. Get out of my, st- my sight. Stop blocking my path is what it literally means. Stop trying to hinder the mission. Now, what I find interesting is that Matthew uses the exact same language one other place in 16 verse 23. And it's when Jesus is speaking to, those, to his disciples and he says, listen, you know what? In time, I'm going to die on the cross. I need to die on the cross. And Peter pulls him aside and says, okay, Jesus, I just need to have this little talk to you man to man. I just got to let you know, you got to stop talking like that, Jesus. And he rebukes him and says, listen, this whole cross thing is not necessary, Jesus. You're scaring us when you talk about the cross. There's a better way. Everyone knows you're the Messiah. You don't need to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say? Exactly the same thing he said to Satan on the mountain. Get behind me. And he even called Peter Satan. Why? Because without realizing it, Peter is attempting to. The same thing with Jesus in chapter 16 that Satan was attempting in chapter 4. Trying to get Jesus to take his authority without the cross. The crown of the king of kings must come by way of the cross. There is no other way. Without the cross, there is no crown. Now, I love the way Matthew records this, and I know we're in Luke, but I just got lost, so you're lost with me. Isn't there a song from the 80s? If we are lost, we are lost together? Yeah. Tyler can play it later when he comes back up. Fast forward, and Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus standing on another mountain after the cross. And what are the words out of his mouth to his disciples? His final words. This is what he says He's giving his mission. They're gonna carry on what he began, and this is what he said. All authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. Not just on earth, in heaven and on earth. It didn't come by compromise. It didn't come by being distracted from God's mission. It came from suffering in obedience to God's purpose and God's mission in God's way, in God's time. And now the followers of Jesus are being asked to do the same. I'm leaving. You're carrying this on until I return down the road. Carry on the mission, but carry it on in God's way. And carry it on in God's time. So what can we pull from this this morning? Three observations I'd like to draw from the second testing of Jesus. First is vision. And by vision I mean sight, not as in future planning. Vision. During this particular test of Jesus, Satan attempts Jesus to abandon the mission by appealing to him visually through the lust of the eyes. We need to be reminded this morning that Satan will do the same and attempt to do the same with us. Now, seeing can be problematic in two ways. First, by drawing our attention to things that are appealing to us. Satan not only showed him the kingdom, he showed him the splendor of the kingdom. Things that are appealing to us. Things that we want to see. Things that we are drawn to in our nature. Things like materialism. You see that car yesterday as I was continuing my Saturday morning garage sale thing. I could do a whole series on my experiences at garage sales. This beautiful little Fiat sports car sitting out in front of the house and I joked, is that for sale? And he said, actually, yes. And then I got scared because <laughs> I thought I was too far in. I just looked at that and I thought, I think I might be out of fit inside of that. I don't know. <laughs> I could see me hanging out of it. It was nice. Or you go to, you see someone's home and it's a beautiful home. Or they're wearing really nice clothes or jewelry or they're just going or getting back from an amazing vacation destination. And you see these things and you think, man, what I wouldn't give to be able to have some of that. I, I want that car. I want that house. I want that vacation. I want that jewelry. I want that clothes. And sometimes we want these things so bad that, that some people make, you know, they, they make compromises in their lives. They make poor decisions because they want it so bad. Perhaps we make decisions and sacrifices that negatively affect our relationship with God. That, that in pursuit of these things, God gets lost along the way. Or maybe it, it affects our relationship with others, our spouse and our children, because we're so driven to these things. And in order to get these things, there's just got to be, you know, things along the way that get discarded. These things can become a distraction for us, can become a priority and overpower our focus on God. And you know, not all of us struggle with that, but I've met many people along the way really driven. And I'm going to tell you, if you especially come from an upbringing where you had very little, the drive To gain is so linked to your value and self-esteem that so often you'll get lost in trying to accomplish these things and gain these things because somehow it makes you feel approved and successful. So we have to be careful. Sometimes we look at power and position. To observe, we observe people in leadership positions. We want that as well. I remember as a youth pastor, you know, so often it was so frustrating because senior pastors, they just don't get it, you know? Like, as a youth pastor, you know what's best. And, and we had this ongoing joke. If I were senior pastor, things would be different around here. And he always said, I have no doubt. Well, then one day I found myself sitting at his desk. He was gone. I was a new senior pastor. It was pretty lonely. Because as much as the other staff like you... You're still the senior, and you're lonely, and you're down the hall, and then there's a problem, and you don't know whose desk to put it on, because there is no other desk. It's yours, and so we look at people in leadership positions. People joke when they come to my office, you're going to, I'm going to sit in your chair. I'm like, have at it. Park in my spot, which I don't have, technically, and so we want these positions. We want to be the boss. We want to be on that level. We want to succeed, and there's nothing wrong with success in our lives, but sometimes we might have to compromise to make it happen, to get ahead, to climb the ladder. People do this every day of their lives. They compromise their integrity. They compromise their character. They compromise their families. They compromise their faith to, to climb up another ladder in their career that they can't get to at this time without compromise. And all of a sudden, you got to be careful because you're consumed and your focus is off God. Satan uses vision with relationships. You may be here today and maybe you're not in one and you really would like to. You're drawn to an attractive person. You're drawn to an attractive personality. But perhaps they're not the person you should be with. Perhaps it's not good for you. Perhaps it's not right. Perhaps you're here today and you're married. And maybe you're drawn to someone that's not your spouse. Maybe you work with this person or you know this person from somewhere, and all of a sudden you're struggling because you're finding yourself becoming emotionally attached, which can lead to more serious acts if it hasn't already. It can end in compromise, it can end in broken trust. One of the most dangerous issues that relate to relationship and seeing and vision is pornography. It's pornography. Men are visual creatures. Men are visual creatures. And that's why pornography is such a struggle with so many men. Because pornography gives a compromised, instant gratification of the visual desire of lust. And so we have to be careful. And I'm talking about it because statistically, we all know. That this is almost as much an issue inside the context of the family of God as it is outside. The enemy uses what we can see to get us to compromise and forsake the mission. But secondly, by drawing attention to the things we can't see. The Bible calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. But the truth is, we're, we're very much sight-oriented people, aren't we? When we pray, we want to see the answer. And we want to see it pretty much right away. We want closeness. God seems distant. God's not coming through for us. So we, like the Israelites, we become impatient. And we now take matters in our own hands. We make decisions based on what we think we should do. It sounds like a good idea. We justify it. We bounce it off a friend. They seem to think it's a good idea too, and so we do it. But we're reminded that there is a big difference between a good idea and a God idea. They are not the same. God ideas are always good ideas, but good ideas are not always God ideas. Did you follow that at all? Good. Satan uses sight as a means to distract us from the plan and purpose of God. Either things we see that we want or things that we want that we don't see. To distract us from the plan and purpose in God in our lives by getting us to stop trusting God and take matters in our own hands. I don't know if you're like me, but I struggle with taking control and matters in my own hands. I've learned to have to give those things to God. But you know, if it's not happening, I'm just going to help you out a little here. No thanks, Shannon. I, I, I I got this. Secondly, worship. You know, when we talk about worship, we often think in terms of a church service like we so beautifully enjoyed this morning. We think of music, which we heard so beautifully played this morning and singing and so on. Sadly, over the last 20, 30 years, churches have fought so much over the issue of worship. Over styles of worship and preferences of worship in an attempt, oftentimes, just to protect what we, that we feel sacred and important Truthfully, what we're often fighting to protect is our own preferences and our own comfort zones. But we need to understand that worship can't be confined. As wonderful as it is when we gather, and I wouldn't want to miss it for anything in the community that's here, and God's presence that is here, and what he's doing when we gather, worship cannot be confined to a church worship service. It can't be confined to volume levels or song selections. We can't limit worship like that. Worship is who we are before God. Worship is how we live our lives in relationship with God on a daily basis. You know, we stand here this morning and raise our hands, but before we leave the building, you know, we're mean to someone or we we say the wrong thing or we think the wrong thought or we do the wrong thing. You know, we think it's okay because we did the worship. No, you're still worshiping. As you're grunting going out the door, that's your worship. How we treat others. Jesus said, this is how they're going to know that you belong to me. By the way you love each other. That's going to be the testimony. Not whether your hands are raised or you wave flags or you dance up and down the aisles or any of that stuff. That's not what's going to convince people that you belong to me. It's how you love each other. That's worship. How you love each other in here. How you love your family. How you love the people in the streets. How you love the people in your neighborhood. And at work and all of those places. That is your worship. How you live before them every day is your worship. Because how we live is a reflection of who we serve. And who we serve is a reflection of who we worship. You can't separate worship from serving. And Bob Dylan, that great theologian with a nasally voice tells us, I was going to attempt to do the voice, but I won't. You got to serve somebody, right? You got to serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. A lot of truth in that statement. We're serving somebody. We're worshiping somebody. All." day long we're worshiping somebody. The question is, who's the focus of our worship? How do we serve? What are, are we serving our ambitions? Are we lying in bed at night dreaming of how we can accomplish the next thing? Are we out of bed first thing in the morning and we get up and wake up the birds and the squirrels? Because we're so driven to our ambitions and trying to figure it out. Is that who we're serving? Are we serving our emotions? I think there's never been a generation in history that served their emotions more than this one. How I feel, what I want, how I want to feel has become more important than anything. And all of life revolves around how I feel. Are we worshiping our emotions? You know, sometimes that's what worship in church becomes. If I'm not emotionally moved, it wasn't a great worship service, even though the words were straight from the word of God and the presence of God was here. But if I'm not stirred emotionally, somehow I can't worship. Well, at that point, you're worshiping worship. We worship our emotions. We worship our egos. The point is, Is God the number one priority of our lives? Does faith shape our lives? How we live every day? Is Jesus really the Lord of all areas of our lives? Our ambitions, our emotions, our ego, our circumstances. Is he the Lord of all of that? Or do we serve ourselves? Do we serve our careers? Do we serve our interests and our passions, our dreams and our goals? Do we we serve things? See, Satan attempts to shift our focus away from God towards other things because his goal is that we would worship things other than worshiping God because when we worship things we're actually worshiping him because anything that takes worship away from God is anti God thirdly and finally timing we live in a culture that promotes instant gratification technology caters to this mindset. We don't want to wait for anything. We don't want to even go grocery shopping anymore. We just want to pull up and have them bring it out. In fact, we don't even want to pull up anymore, be at the go station waiting for me when I get there. I mean, it's the world we give it. We don't like slow traffic. We don't like slow lineups. We don't like slow computers. This morning at The final minute, Sarah informed me that for some reason, the sermon keynote wasn't on the computer. I think I forgot to put it there, Sarah. I think that was the problem. But since Mike's not here, let's blame the fact that he lost it somehow. And all of a sudden, I thought, okay, I can do this. I'll just go back there. I'll take last week's. I'll open my notes on my phone and I'll make the changes and we'll make it happen. And I'm on the computer and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I said to Sarah, this computer is so slow. It's so slow. 20 years ago, that would have been a rocket. It was so slow because that's the age we live in. It's got to be quick. We can't have slow internet. We can't have slow computers. We can't have long lineups. We can't have slow traffic. It needs to come quick. We can't be bothered going in the store. We'll just get it on on the way out the door. We want it quick. And not only do we want things fast, we want them with minimum sacrifice. I want you to deliver it to me, but I want to pay extra for that. We don't want to pay the cost. We don't want to put up with the pain or the inconvenience. We just want it easy. We live in a culture that celebrates the attitude of live in the moment, no regrets, just don't think about tomorrow, just just do it. And it's become problematic. It's problematic for marriages. Cuz people don't want to do the hard work anymore. You think my father wanted to spend 50 something years with my mother? I'll guarantee you he didn't. That's why he died first, I know. <laughs> he wanted out. God, give me a heart attack now, right? People don't want to do the hard work. I look back even for us. I mean, we're, we're, we're rookies really, but 30 years next month. Do you know how many of our friends didn't make it past seven? Most of the people we know of or many of the people we know didn't make it this far. They haven't. People don't want to do the hard work. It's a lot easier to walk away. If you don't think that this woman hasn't wanted to walk away from me, you're out of your mind. Do you know how many times I wanted to leave me? And everywhere I went, there I was. It's easier to walk away. No one wants to do the hard work. Just get a new spouse. Just be free with all the hard work and the difficulties, right? Because it'll be better next time, yeah. Because all the crap that you brought to the relationship, you're just going to drag it into the new one, but somehow magically it's going to be better. Well, it isn't. That's right. (laughs) I want to be happy now is what we say. This person's holding me back. This person's not meeting my needs. I'm gone. I'm out. Easier to leave than it is to stay. Work through your problems. It affects our careers. I want to accomplish a certain level. I want to be paid a certain amount. I want recognition in my field, but I want it now. And if I got to compromise my integrity to get there, if I got to throw some people under the bus, if I got to do some things that are questionable, if I got to neglect my family, and lose them in the process, well, that's a price I'm willing to pay because I can't live my life and not attain that level. Same with material things. Got to have it. We see what's available. Others have it. We can't afford it. Instead of waiting until we can afford it, we go into debt. I am not convinced that young people getting married today had any more money than Jennifer and I had. But here we were with the Jetsons table and the kitchen that belonged to her parents from 100 years before until we could buy one that we could afford. It was a different day. You didn't start off with a house and stuff nicer than your parents. You just didn't. So do I resent you for that? Absolutely. <laughs> it's not fair. Instead of waiting until we can afford it, we go into debt so we can get it when? Now. I want it now. And then we have this pressure on our families. And the number one cause of divorce in this country is financial fights. The pressure and stress of money. And tears families apart. Satan promised Jesus authority. But he promised, you know, but by trusting God and by being obedient to God's plan, in God's way, in God's time. Jesus got more authority than he was ever offered by Satan, but he just did it in God's way and God's time. But Satan wants us to want things so bad that we're willing to compromise and take what is flawed and what is limited to become captive instead of free And what we do is we end up chasing empty promises, not reality. And at the end of the day, we're surrounded by the stuff, but our family is broken or our family is gone. And the people who matter the most aren't a part of it. And we are sitting there empty thinking, all this stuff was supposed to make me happy, but I'm not. Trust God. Trust God's plan. Trust God's time. That's what Jesus is communicating here. Yes, Satan, you're offering me an amazing opportunity. And it comes at little price. And it comes without waiting. But I'm just going to stick with God's plan. God's time. God's way. And he came through. And that's what we need to be reminded of this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Folks, we need to be reminded this morning that there is an enemy who desires to destroy and deceive and distract us from God's mission. But in studying the life of Jesus here, we are reminded that we can overcome the enemy through the authority of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit who leads our lives. The enemy is going to attempt to show us what we think we need what we need more than anything is to stay focused on Jesus Christ the enemy is going to attempt to get us to shift our serving giving the best of ourselves shift that away from serving God to serving ourselves and to serving temporary things but we need to be stay focused on Jesus Christ the enemy will attempt to prey on our struggle with patience and timing, and try to get us to act inappropriately, out of context, outside of God's plan and purpose for us. But we must trust God. If we're going to live the mission of Jesus, we must be completely committed to the mission of Jesus and be unshakable. Would you stand with me this morning? And as the worship team leads us today, first and foremost, what I'd like to invite you to do is that during this time of worship, allow the Holy Spirit to continue to speak into your heart, into your mind, into your life. You see, because I don't know what God's saying to you, But I'm sure he's dealing with specifics in your life today. Specifics that maybe none of us even know. But as we worship him for the next few moments, I would invite you just to allow yourself to to push all that other stuff aside and to hear from him this morning and, and just to realign your life before you walk back out these doors. An act of repentance, an act of recognition and remorse and seeing the need to do something different. And then go out and live it. And if you're here this morning and there's a need in your life and you'd like us to pray for you, I'm going to invite those from the prayer team that are here this morning. Pastor Mark is is away on vacation, well-deserved vacation. He's not here this morning, but those of you who are here and part of our prayer team, if you would come. And we just want to pray with you, whatever your need is this morning, to encourage you and pray with you before we send you on your way. So can we take the next few moments To allow God to just really, by His Spirit, put all of this in context for each of us individually this morning. So that when we leave, we can say, you know what? That wasn't just a random service to get through. God showed me something really significant for my life this morning.